Hello and welcome to Eclectic Waffle, the podcast with one theme only, interesting conversations with interesting people about interesting things. I'm your host, Tom, and it's very nice to have you here. When I was a student, I shared a flat with three other people, and in our kitchen come living room come dining room area it's all a big open plan thing um when it came to food there was a five second rule which was that anything that we ate first of all had to be inserted up our bottom for five seconds and consequently i i never did any cooking for myself and and always ate out because because i considered that rule deeply unhygienic um rather weird and even a bit perverted. Um, initially, I, I would get a takeaway sometimes and come back and, and eat in the kitchen with the chaps, but it just became intolerable from um, uh, from a visual point of view and also um, from a hygiene angle. And, yeah, I just found it really unnerving. And, you know, maybe that makes me prurient. I don't know. Different people would have different uh, views about that. But I I didn't like it. I didn't like it. And so, consequently, at that time of my life, when really I should have been learning to cook, I didn't make much progress at all. Um, so I would, um, I would go out on the town and... Uh, and I would eat. I would eat meals out. Spend a lot of time in uh, in McDonald's. Um, it's embarrassing now to recall that uh, for whew, fifteen, sixteen years, I thought that McDonald's was a Scottish themed restaurant. Um, apparently, it's the very epitome of American fast food. But I, I'd always just seen it as having uh, a Scottish theme. I mean, a few of the staff were Scottish. Um, but it's the name McDonald's. I mean, that is not an American name. That is a, a Scottish name, quintessential Scottish name. And so, yeah, um, I feel I feel embarrassed about that. I feel embarrassed about wearing the kilt. Now, I'm entitled to wear a kilt. Uh, I am quarter Scottish, and that's enough. And it means that I am a member of uh, a variety of clans. And I'd always try and wear an authentic tartan. But looking back, I... I did see their eyes glaze over when I would tell them about the tartan that I was wearing and and why I'd chosen it. And, you know, I would leave sometimes thinking it's like they didn't care at all. Um, And I think in retrospect that they they didn't care and possibly thought I was some sort of oddball. Um, Obviously, had I done this in Scotland itself, then no one would have battered an eyelid. But there is a Scottish diaspora in Oxford, and it seems strange to me that um, it seems strange to me that uh, that it, 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 it that it wasn't uh, considered normal to to be wearing a kilt. I got some very very odd looks. They're just like, yeah, okay, we're in England, but this is a Scottish restaurant. Um, this is the best of Scottish cuisine. McDonald's is very delicious, isn't it? I can't imagine any restaurant in Scotland would be higher end or nicer than that. And, uh, yeah, just when I look back on my culinary experience at university, it leaves a 
leaves a, an unfortunate taste in the mouth. We actually had various obligations in terms of eating uh, at university. You, you had to eat in hall um, in the college a certain number of times um, every term. There was a guy, a very bright guy, who went on to get a first-class degree, and um, he he never went. Um, and although, strictly speaking, he should have done, I mean, no one ever made a big deal of it. Uh, he told people, or, or he let it be known, rather, that he didn't go because he was too shy. And it was only um, a year or so after leaving university I discovered that the reason um, that he didn't uh, come to Hall in the evening and dine with the rest of us, it wasn't because he was antisocial, it wasn't because he didn't have very good conversation, it wasn't because he didn't like wearing a gown. We had to wear a gown to go to dinner, which is um, it's obviously very antediluvian, but... Uh, rather charming in my opinion no no the reason he didn't come um this chap called david the reason he didn't come was um on top of studying really quite hard he um he was making a robot he made a, a robot woman um i never got to the bottom of whether it was a sexual thing or not my hunch is that it wasn't but he made a, a woman a robot woman who was about nine foot tall and um, must have weighed, according to I didn't have, I only saw a photograph, but according to the people who saw it, I mean, it, given it was made of fairly solid metal, um, it would have had to have weighed well over four hundred pounds. Um, and he made it with sort of bits of scrap, which he just walked around the city accumulating, just little bits of scrap metal, discarded um, tobacco boxes like you may have had when you were a, a kid. We did at school. We had our crayons in primary school were stored in old tins of Golden Virginia. And he just collected loads of stuff like that. And he made he made this nine-foot woman, who apparently was, was sensational looking. I mean, that's why there may have been a sexual element. But I'm not actually quite sure how he was oriented sexually himself. But certainly, from the photo I saw, he put a lot of effort into making this person an absolute knockout. Um... He called her Sheila. Now, I don't want to sound snobbish, but I don't know, if I was making the the quintessentially... I've used the word quintessential or variation of it now three times, to, once to explain that I've been using it um, too much, but, but before that, two times, and nah, that's pretentious, isn't it, to use that word two times? That's not a word that you'd normally drop into conversation more than once. It's not really a word that you'd use more than well, anything like once a day. It'd normally be a kind of once a week or even once a month thing, wouldn't it? That's embarrassing. I'm not going to go back and edit that out because that would feel like cheating. But yeah, that's not good. I feel I feel chastened about that. But this was David's version of the of the Venus de Milo, really. Uh, David, the person I was at school with, not. Uh, not David Michelangelo's statue. <laughs> It'd be funny if David Michelangelo's statue was responsible for the Venus de Milo painting. That would be wheels within 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 within wheels. So it's very hard to get out of that particular loop. Um, yeah, and so instead of kind of socialising with people, he made this enormous robot and it was a robot it wasn't just a statue it was a robot because um it, he animated it and it was able to move um 
And the thing is, David was uh, was an English literature student. He didn't. He wasn't an engineer. So on top of all of his, you know, pretty difficult studies, because uh, at Oxford you have to do Anglo-Saxon as part of English, and you know, learn a whole new language, and um, you have to read pretty voraciously. It's you know, it's it's a pretty demanding course, and yet he still found time to to make this huge ro- robot woman. But he called her Sheila. And it seemed a bit odd. But maybe, and this was a guy, bear in mind, who read The Greats, The Greats of English Literature, maybe that was that was his joke. Maybe the notion that it wasn't quite right was itself a metaphor and was meant to say something very deep that I wouldn't, I would struggle to understand. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's possible. I'd love to track him down and find out. <clears throat> I say that, of course, I could easily do it, thanks to Google. Um, in fact, I did idly Google him once, and, and he's a teacher um, in Sussex, so it'd be quite easy to find him. So when I say I'd love to, I'm, I'm exaggerating for effect. Um, but yeah, um, he made a robot. I don't know whether he kept it, her. Is it a her? I mean, he gave it a, he gave it a gender. He gave it a gender. It doesn't seem to me to be a huge leap of whatever, to call the robot her, given that, it, you know, it's meant to represent a woman. After all, the Italians and the French, I mean, they, they gender everything, don't they? Every noun has a bloody gender. Um, Germany, you get you get male and female and neutral, and you just think, what? What basis? On what basis do you decide what gender something is? And why are certain things in German neutral? But other things aren't. Other things that also seem to have no gender-specific quality whatsoever. It's very strange. In Italian, the uh, it's la citata for the guitar, so that's very much feminine. Um, I was told that in no uncertain terms by an Italian man who ran a guitar shop in Florence. Um, but I often think of guitars as male, and of course the famous Willie Nelson um, guitar, Trigger, is uh, named after Roy Rogers's horse. Um, he, uh, uh, that's a man. That well, it's not a man. It's a, it's a male. It's a male thing. I don't know. It's very odd to. Uh, it's very odd in a way, isn't it? To, uh, to gender things which are inanimate. <clears throat> but there you go. Um, I've been smoking a lot of cannabis, um, in my dreams. Never touch the stuff in real life, but I uh, I keep dreaming about smoking it, and uh, smoking it and taking it with LSD, and and I get these kind of really weird um, experiences. Like uh, I can walk on my hands, by which I don't mean that I'm I've, my arms are so long I can get them underneath my feet. I mean that I can uh, go into a full handstand and walk along on my hands. Um, so I'll I'll, uh, I'll put my hands on the floor and then I'll just leave my legs up and up and up and up and my feet will shoot up into the air and I will be doing a perfect handstand and then yeah then I get going on the uh, on the old hands and I and I walk forward and you know it's a very pleasant experience and it's something that I'm willing to devote quite a lot of time to being able to do for real but it will not be a nice thing to do if the streets are not clean. And you hear very little these days, very little, about the importance of uh, of clean streets. And I think those of us 
who can walk on our hands and those of us who aspire to walk on our hands um, really need to be given much more encouragement by the government because it's a good form of exercise. It's good for cardio, it's good for muscular um, development, it's good for muscular endurance. And yet the hand walkers are just being completely ignored by local government, whose job it is to keep, keep the roads clean and sturdy, and by national government, who could take a lead. And while we're obsessing with all kinds of trivia, like um, pandemics and racial tension, we're not thinking about the stuff that really matters. We're not thinking about innovative forms of exercise. I say innovative, of course, actually. What could be more natural than walking on your hands? Well, walking on your feet. But what could be more natural than using your body to exercise? Um, where people are moving away from fixed barbells and machines and kettlebells now, and they're doing a lot more body weight exercises. And the government has got to catch up. I don't know whether this is a European Union thing and they have wanted to stop people from walking on their hands. <clears throat> I wouldn't be amazed if um, if the Belgians object to that, knowing them. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Belgians... People don't realise this about Belgium. <clears throat> they think of it as a small country that isn't really a country and and nothing like as economically powerful as the others. But, you know... What I say is read between the lines and look beyond the headlines. Did you know that Brussels is in Belgium? Most people think it's in Germany. They think Germany is the most powerful country. Therefore, Brussels, where the European Union is based, is obviously in Germany. And they don't bother, they don't bother to look it up. You see, I read. I like to read newspapers. I don't just read books. And Brussels is not in Germany. Okay. It's not in Germany, it's in Belgium. Right? Think about what that means. There is another European Parliament in Strasbourg, because the French insisted on it, because, you know, you know what they're like. But Brussels, I thought, I thought for a long time that was probably about half an hour outside Berlin, but it's not. It's in Belgium. And what else do we know about Belgium? They make very good lager. And what else do we know? We know that the company Aramith is there that make all the best pool, billiard and snooker balls and Caron balls. And then it all starts to make sense, doesn't it? When you know that. When you know some of the detail, the actual detail. Okay? You don't just go through your life in a, in a drug-induced haze like you're smoking the cannabis that I'm smoking in my dreams or taking the LSD I'm taking in my dreams. You take a moment, you don't just listen you don't just listen to what the man in the pub says, you actually do some reading and you learn Brussels is not in Germany, it's in Belgium. Okay? Okay? And they make lager. And lager is the drink of the common man. And they make very good billiard balls. And billiards is the game of the common man. This is not a coincidence. This is not a coincidence at all. This is Belgium ingenuity. Agatha Christie knew. Hercule Poirot famously is not French. Okay, he sounds French, but he's not. He's Belgium. And, you know, he was the best detective ever. He was a brilliant detective. And you might be thinking, 
Okay, well, obviously, if someone's really, really clever and insightful, they must be English. No, that's only usually the case. No, Hercule Poirot was Belgium, because Agatha Christie, long before the United Kingdom entered the, the, the common market, Agatha Christie knew that Belgians were cunning. The Belgians were cunning, and they liked to get their own way. And how do they get their own way when they're a small country with limited influence? They say, I know what. Why don't we host this parliament, this parliament that will make, and this institution that will make nationality and nations and national interest not as important as us all coming together in Western Europe and later on bits of Eastern Europe? We'll host it. We'll host it. You know, they've learned from America. America had no influence in the world whatsoever until they said, we'll host the United Nations in New York. Same principle. And now look at America. Yes, things are sort of waxing and waning a bit, but but they've had a very good run of it. And China is now buying up Africa. Again, you know... This tiny little country in Asia which nobody had heard of. Nobody had heard of, living in the shadow of Tibet and Taiwan. But they've built up they've they've bought up great tracts of Africa. And all of a sudden and this has only happened in the last couple of years, have you noticed? It's very, very interesting. You look at a little toy, you buy I'm buying toys for new members of the family now, and uh you buy a little toy and ah, made in China. Okay, I thought they just made pottery, but no, they're making all sorts of things now. Um, And it's exactly the same principle. You find a way of of having influence in the world. You know, the Romans did it by killing and just taking over vast tracts of land. Um, But the Belgians have done it in a very clever way, basically by by being party hosts. We will host the dinner party. Come to ours. And then all of a sudden, everything, everything is, uh, yeah, the whole thing is, is uh, initially opaque. And then you start to, you start to understand that, that they're in control. Now, there is actually no evidence for my theory that it's the Belgians who object to people walking on their hands. Um and in fairness, although the European Union has really, really got its tentacles into every sort of area of our lives, I'm not aware that they would... There's no proof that they are concerned about whether people in the United Kingdom walk on their feet or on their hands. But it just gets you thinking, doesn't it? It just gets you thinking, why are the streets dirty? Why are there so many potholes? And you don't see that many hand walkers. You don't see that many hand walkers. And people say it's because you need to be unusually athletic. But is that the case? Or is it just that the people who do walk on their hands are unusually intrepid? I mean, you always get people who are so brave that almost no obstacle will get in their way. You can't break their spirit. You can't break their will. And those are the people who, you know, end up joining the special forces going into the parachute regiment and then joining the the SAS or being a Royal Marine and joining the SBS. 
you know, and 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 the truth is, if you do see a, a man walking down the street on his hands, he's probably a veteran, and don't interrupt him. Don't interrupt him. You don't want him to fall over for a start. But if he comes to a natural stop and and maybe comes out of his handstand and and becomes upright in the normal way, then you know maybe just say, "Look, I really appreciate your service. Thank you." And if he's of a certain age, if he looks like he was maybe in his twenties or his thirties in nineteen eighty then perhaps give him a little wink because you know there's a very good chance he was one of the SAS guys who stormed the Iranian embassy in London in 1980. Ooh, that was exciting. That was exciting. They wouldn't have gone in and walked on their hands in that environment because it was absolutely replete with terrorists. And although probably there are hand walkers and acrobats who could fire a, a machine gun using their feet while standing on their hands, you, you, why would you do it? Why would you do it? Because, of course, your face is facing the wrong way when you're walking on your hands. I mean, you have, unless you can really sort of lift your head up and raise your chin and see straight ahead, it's just not as effective as going in on your feet. Um, I mean, it, you know, it could be interesting from a tactical point of view to just buy that extra split second or maybe maybe a couple of seconds, even as much as a couple of seconds, um, where the terrorists look up and... Uh, and they see someone who's come in and is walking on their hands, and they'd be like, "What is going on here?" And in that time, someone who's skilled could um, could 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 operate the machine gun and and, and could shoot them to death. Um, the problem is that I can't see how you'd fire a submachine gun or a machine gun. I can't. What's the difference, by the way, submachine gun and a machine gun? Interesting question. Does submachine gun mean it's partially partially machine and partially you pulling the trigger? Mm-hmm. Something to think about? Yeah, I can't imagine how you'd fire a gun um, with your feet if you were wearing boots. And so that would commit the SAS troopers to have burst, burst into the Iranian embassy. Um, you'd have to stay on your hands all the time. Because if you decided actually this is going to be easier for on my feet then they'd have gone in and they'd have had no no boots on and no socks. And, you know, all kinds of things can be on the floor when you've had terrorists. All kinds of things can be on the floor. And so, yeah, I expect they went in they went in on their feet. But the point about being a hand walker is it, it's not a choice. You don't have to say, OK, from now on I walk on my hands. Your feet still exist. you still got your feet. It just means that they can be, you know, you can use your feet for other things if you could walk on your hands. You know, the feet can get a break from doing the walking thing, and your feet can do other stuff. You can use your feet for other tasks. Nice, nice break for your feet. Nice for your feet to have variety. But they're still feet. I'm not saying for one minute that we're meant to walk on our hands and not on our feet. That would be ridiculous. That would be ridiculous. I'm just saying that walking on your hands, you know, is a nice thing to do, um, and 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 is good for you. But uh, yeah, there does seem to be some determination among. The powers that be, whether it, whether it is the European Union, um, from their centre in Brussels, Brussels, Belgium, not Brussels, Germany, um, uh, you know, there seems to be some determination to stop us from walking on our hands. And you just think, why is that? Well, I don't think it's a great leap of faith or a conspiracy theory to say that um, someone who can walk on his hands is going to be a quite a free thinker anyway. You know, if you walk on your hands, you're someone who doesn't go by the rules. 
And if you don't go by the rules, then you're dangerous. You are dangerous, aren't you? You you are a danger to people who want to control you. And as we know, the Belgians are a very controlling people. They've come to dominate the lager industry. What what better single way than to get into the heads and the hearts and the bellies of impressionable working class men? You drink a Belgian beer and Belgium is literally inside you. Think about that. Think about the control that that offers. Wow. It is an amazing thought, isn't it? And what do people like to do when they have a few drinks? They like to play pool. You know? And who goes to the pub and plays pool, whether it's American pool or um, or, or English pool with the red and yellow balls? You know? Who goes and picks up a stick and has a go, plays a few frames. Who doesn't know that those balls are quite likely to have been made in Belgium? Everyone knows that. Everybody knows. They don't talk about it, but they all know. They all know that Aramith dominate the billiard industry. And so very subtly, very cleverly, it just seeps into one's subconscious. Subconscious. Seeps into one's subconscious. Belgium is good. Belgium is good. Belgium is good. Belgium is good. Belgium. Belgium. Belgian things. Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts. Why are they not just called sprouts? No, they're called Brussels sprouts. When do you eat Brussels sprouts? Sprouts? Well, not very often, probably. But I tell you when you probably do eat them, you eat them on Christmas Day, don't you? Hmm? You eat them on Christmas Day. And I don't know how old you are, obviously, but you're probably thinking, yeah, well, you know, that's not a big deal if you only eat them once a year. Well, well, yeah, it is quite a big deal. It's the most special time of year, the most special meal of the year. They don't need you to eat them year-round. If you're eating them on Christmas Day with your family and loved ones around you, looking forward to the Queen's speech and a movie in the evening, and then maybe some charades or whatever, that is happiness. They're giving you happiness. And they do want something in return. Now, what you're saying is, Tom, Tom, look, you, 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 this, is, this is ridiculous. I mean, it's just an established part of our culture. No. No. You think that you've always had Brussels sprouts on Christmas Day. Yeah, if you're my sort of age, in your mid-40s, you're probably thinking that's the way it's always been. It hasn't. That is your imagination playing tricks on you. What you have had, my friend, every day on Christmas, every Christmas day for lunch, what you have had is sprouts. They were only called Brussels sprouts for the first time In 1996. Yeah. Yeah. Just let that sink in. What you thought were always called Brussels sprouts were not named Brussels sprouts until 1996. How do I know this? Someone told me. 
and I'm as astonished as you. And it it begs lots of interesting questions, doesn't it? Because um, I was certain that they'd always been called Brussels sprouts. I'd have sworn blind that they were always called Brussels sprouts. I would have said so on the stand in court if I was a witness in a court case. And that is a terrifying realisation. That is a terrifying realisation. That I was sincerely in error. I wasn't conspiring to say, oh, they were always called Brussels sprouts. I'm not part of a conspiracy. I genuinely thought it. Well, what else do people genuinely believe? What else do people misremember? It is a terrifying thought that our brains play these tricks on us. And it is quite possible, therefore, that a six foot seven inch black man could go to prison for a crime committed by a five foot eight Swedish man. Not because the witness is a bigot, but because they are sincerely in error. And that is so frightening. That is such a frightening realisation. That our brains play all these kind of tricks on us. So what can you do? Well, you can do what I'm suggesting. You can do what I'm suggesting and you can read. Read and talk to intelligent people. The person I met who told me about the Brussels sprouts thing is a highly, highly educated civil servant that I had the pleasure of meeting at a dinner party through mutual friends. And after we'd had a, f- a nice meal... It's funny because I think I'd sort of irritated him earlier on in the evening. But um, as, as the evening wore on, he, he kind of warmed up and he started telling me all these, all these interesting things, um, which was very good of him not to have any hard feelings. I th- I'd managed to say something which should upset his wife. And um, it was all a bit tense. And, and, um, um, but he was, the, he was the bigger man. And, and he, he, you know, instead of getting cross, he took me into his confidence and, and told me all these amazing things. Uh, the Brussels sprouts thing was, uh, I mean, I just, yeah, blew my mind. Not until 1996 were they called Brussels sprouts. And there's no, you know, there's no reason for them now to be called it, by the way. It's 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 a rebranding exercise. I mean, if it had been the case that we now mainly got our sprouts from Brussels, it would at least make a certain sense. They don't come from Brussels at all. They don't come from Brussels at all. And And they haven't even paid for the privilege. It's not like an advertising thing. They've managed to just get us all to say Brussels sprouts. It's a bit like at school when these sort of terms catch on. I remember once I, I, I decided to see if I could do that at school and um, I had the word peasant um, and peasantish as a verb used to describe someone who was just a bit of a dickhead. Um, and just a bit naff. I, I, I regret that really because of course there's nothing wrong with being a peasant and... Um, it was just a further example of how um, how casual our bigotry was in those days. But uh, yeah, I got most of the, I got most of my sort of friendship circle using the word peasant and peasantish, and that that was me. I just decided to do that for my own amusement to see how it worked. Well, the Belgians have managed to do that with Brussels sprouts. Um, but the terrifying thing is how quickly we forget. How quickly we forget that. Um, that they weren't called that before, but it's just seeped into our consciousness to such an extent 
that we feel like that's that's the way it ever was. You know, just like we think that America was a big deal before they hosted the United Nations. Just like, you know, people will tell you, because of course there is also there is also bad faith in all this because people like to pretend that they're in the know. So, you know, if someone tells you that they'd, they heard of, they'd heard of China 10 years ago, then just be a little bit sceptical is all I'm saying. Just be a little bit sceptical. Because actually, you'd heard of Tibet and Taiwan. That's that's the overwhelming likelihood, is that you'd heard of Taiwan and Tibet, but China had just never registered on your radar. Because why would it have done? Um, and, you know, in the last few years, they've managed to really kind of buck their ideas up. And, um, yeah, I mean, buying toys, again, is a great way to influence people, isn't it? If a kid picks up something and it says made in China and it's one of their favourite toys, they're going to think, oh, I like China. And that's why in the last, you know, two or three years they've really ramped up their production of toys. And in a way you can't blame them. I mean, countries need to have an influence in the world. They want to have an influence in the world. But I just sort of think, I wish we were better at it. I wish we were better at it. Um, Whatever I've travelled, you know, whether it's to America or to Europe... Um, it's just apparent that, you know, people have barely heard of the United Kingdom. They know about, um, they know about our, um, Queen. The Queen's obviously very famous. But they don't listen to our music or watch our films. And it's sad because, I mean, if you watch any British television, it can be quite good. Um, but it just hasn't gained any traction anywhere. Some of our classical music composers have uh, have been reasonably popular in other countries, but I mean, you know, Germans. The well, Germans are not going to listen to British music, are they? When you think about their rich history of uh, of composers, um, and you know what we call popular music, pop music for short, is very, very much a domestic affair that just hasn't kind of uh, seeped through into the the public consciousness in, in other countries. And I think that's sad. And I I think our government needs to work harder. You know? I think our government needs to work a lot harder to just sort of get that kind of thing up and running and uh, and beloved in other countries. But really, it's, it's only the sort of expats who move somewhere else. Um, it's only the expats who move elsewhere and take those things with them who have any influence. Um, but basically all these wonderful songs are written and these great movies are made and and no one sees them. No one sees them. And I just think that's sad. It really is... Um, it really is a sobering thought, isn't it? And I think maybe that's why I'm so not sober in my dreams. I think that is my subconscious trying to sort of say, hey man, just, uh, you know... Just chill out a bit, you know, have a joint, drop a drop a drop an acid tab. Because um you know, you you're already out of it in the sense that you're asleep, so why not get more out of it? And in my uh, in my normal life I um you know, I, I live this very ascetic lifestyle, um of uh yeah, walking trying to Working on walking on my hands. First of all, I've got to learn to stand on my hands. I haven't haven't got there yet, but you know, 
it'll be hand walking and um um doing a lot of running and um I've got this rock I like to lift up above my head and uh I sort of sometimes I just push and push against a wall for hours on end. Uh there was an occasion once where I got up at six in the morning and just pushed on a wall solidly for must have been fourteen and a half hours. I worked out, you know, why? What did it accomplish? Well, looking back, the answer is nothing at all. I just stood there, propped up against the wall, push, 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 pushing on the wall, and um, and nothing came of it. It was, it really was. I was going to say quintessential there. The quintessential waste of time, but let's not say quintessential, but just the waste of time. Um, and I just think, you know, yeah, you want to live a real life where you do real things and not just sort of zone out, but, but life can be tough and you need consolations and sometimes maybe don't just push against a wall. Um, don't thrash yourself like Gladstone, William Gladstone did. <laughs> He'd go and visit prostitutes and not have sex with them, but talk to them, and then he'd come home and he'd thrash himself. And I mean, he was prime minister, so he was probably more intelligent and sensible than most. And yet, that was absolutely insane behaviour. Would it have been so very terrible if he'd smoked something and just got a bit squiffy, had a few drinks? I don't know. And the full enormity of of life, you know, I'm trying to deal with it, deal with this sort of realization that Belgians run everything. And that's pretty heavy, and you know I'm I'm fragile. So whilst I'm not sort of relying on drugs to cope with it, while I'm awake, I do when I'm asleep. When I'm asleep, I will smoke a great big, great big, uh, great big doobie, light it up, get off my face, you know. And I'm sleeping well, so it's obviously working. I I think I haven't looked into whether it's legal to take drugs in your sleep or not. Um, the whole sort of... I'm very unclear about what the rules are about cannabis generally. Um, these days, the, it all seems to be a bit complicated, um, what category it is, and there's obviously a difference between selling it and buying it and all of that. Um, how that sort of interferes with our rights to, to do it um, subconsciously in our in our dream world, I, I don't know. I don't know... Never quite clear the extent to which our, our dreams are policed. Um... It's probably something they've handed over to the private sector. I imagine. I imagine that um, uh, the big tech giants, the big technology giants, have found sort of ways of, of monitoring all this. Um, there's probably some sort of residue on. I'm wearing a headset now, and I know there's probably some sort of residue on it. Um, that that means that it, you know, even even if I'm not wearing the headset when I when I go to bed and go to sleep, I and mean, of course I usually do sleep in the headset, but even if I take the headset off, then there's probably some sort of residue which has kind of read my dreams somehow. You know, and how's that data used? If it's just used by the government, well, okay, you know, who doesn't trust the government? I mean, they're basically, you know, their their job is to look after us. Uh, they don't always get it right, but obviously their heart's always in the right place. Um, but if it's some of these technology people trying to make a profit from it, and what if I dream something good? You know, what if I have an idea for a novel? Or a film, and I and I dream it a bit, and then, and then it gets you know, in the tech giants, the tech giant they may not even mean to spread it, but are, is are their servers secure? I don't know. They might record my dream, which is a really good idea for a novel. And okay, it's been my subconscious, 
that has uh, has come up with the idea. But I still, I mean, I would hope I'd have ownership on something my sub. It is my subconscious. I don't think that my subconscious is property of others any more than than my sort of conscious brain is. But yeah, you know, they might record the dream for whatever statistical modeling thing they're doing, and then lo and behold, um, lo and behold. It ends up somewhere else because someone's hacked in. You know, and I'm probably taking a big risk talking about this because it's going to draw attention to the fact that I have a febrile brain that is that is worth copying. Yeah, and I see it all the time. I mean, all the time I see people copying what I've done. But again, you know, it just becomes part of the general culture and it becomes impossible to convince people that... Um, that it was that, that that it was your idea, because like no, it's always been done this way. It's like folk music. You just you know you write a folk song and everyone nicks it. And okay, in music, that's less annoying because when you play a song by someone else, you can sort of make it your own with your interpretation. But if you write a joke, surely that joke belongs to you, not the person who then tells it. Oh, I've taken your joke, but I've made it better using exactly the same words. Well, come off it. I mean, even with sort of things like Shakespeare plays. And again, isn't it sad that no one outside of the UK has heard of William Shakespeare? But but yeah, I, I digress. Um, with, with the Shakespeare play, um, yes, okay, a great actor might do the definitive version of something, but, but they wouldn't say, oh, Paul Schofield is King Lear. They would say Paul Schofield was the best King Lear in a performance of the play King Lear written by William Shakespeare. Um... But now, you know, because ideas are just sort of propagated and stolen and all of that, you 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 don't you don't get any credit for it, right? You don't get any credit for it. I I don't remember anyone wearing jeans and jeans and trainers before I did it. Okay, you you look on television, and it's basically athletes who wear trainers, and they wear trainers with tracksuits or shorts if they're playing tennis, and that was it, right? Who combined the casual clothing wear of jeans, jeans normally associated with boots, with the working man, with cowboys, with blacksmiths, right? Who had thought to combine the jean, the denim jean, with a trainer, with a running shoe, or a shoe that you'd normally wear for basketball? Well, I know, I know who whose idea that was. It was mine. I never saw anyone do it before I did it. But, you know, I tell people all this. I invented the gene and trainer combination and and they just laugh. They just laugh at me. Either because they think I'm joking or, or because they're mocking me. Probably because they know full well it was me. And it's it's bad, that, because it, it tests your sanity. You do start to doubt yourself. You think, well, maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe some people did wear jeans and trainers. But then, you know, I spent hours and hours and hours and hours researching it. And you see someone in a pair of jeans and you either don't see their feet at all or they're wearing boots or sometimes they're wearing the sort of shoes that you'd wear with a suit, which, I mean, each to their own. But I think combining suit-type shoes with, uh, with jeans is a very odd thing to do. But they're never wearing trainers. And then, you know, again, hours and hours of going through the archives and looking at um, uh, looking at people wearing trainers, and 
they're wearing them with with a pair of shorts or with a tracksuit, like I said. You know, they're called trainers. They're called trainers. They're for training in or for performing the sport in. But I combine them with jeans. You know, and I'm not a very likely fashion icon. I know that. And I was proud of that. I thought that was one thing that I'd contributed. And it's not that I want everyone to thank me. You know, it was a gift I gave to the world. I didn't. I never tried to get... Maybe I should have got a patent on it. Not in order to make money from it, but just so that people would know it was me. Because it's the, it's the lack of credit that bothers me. It's the lack of credit. I mean, I'm, I'm not like Brussels. Brussels... And Belgium. You know, Belgium. The Belgians don't actually want the credit for the influence they have because they want people to... They, they want it to seep into people's brains without them realising it. They want to be subtle about it. They don't want us to know the, the power that they exert over us. I mean, that's always the best way to be powerful, by the way, is be much more powerful than people realise. Because if people know you're really powerful, then they're going to get upset. And maybe in a way it's quite good that I'm not known as the guy who invented wearing jeans with trainers because at least it means I'm not going to be targeted by terrorists or, you know, sued if anyone had a... It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But, I mean, you know, if someone has an accident wearing jeans and the combination of jeans and trainers, even though, even though that would have nothing to do with why they had the car crash or why they fell down the stairs, or slipped on the pavement and broke both their arms, um, or, you know, fell fell into a pit, or, you know, maybe you sort of young buck trying to impress a girl by how brave he is by going out on a ledge in the Grand Canyon and slips and falls and plummets to his death. You know, I don't think that that would be ever a result of the combination of, of genes and trainers. Because after all, even if the trainers think it through, even if the tra- and by the way I say trainers, I mean what you Americans would call sneakers. Even if the trainers were were not very good and were slippy, and actually were kind of partly to blame for the accident, I didn't invent trainers. I invented the combination of genes and trainers. I'm the com- I'm the combiner. The combination thing is mine. I'm not culpable at all for whether a pair of jeans is flammable or whether a pair of trainers has a proper tread. And the and the manufacturers are, are only responsible to a limited degree for the trainers. You know, they they don't see you know, I, I I exclusively wear Puma trainers. I'm not I don't have a formal um relationship with Puma. Um, but I choose to wear Puma. If anyone from Puma's listening, I would love to endorse your product because I choose it as a pleasure. And I could say that. I could say that in the adverts. I could say, you know, yes, um, I am being paid to do this advert, but for several years before I was ever hired by Puma, I chose to wear their product exclusively. The only trainers I wear on my feet, uh, for, for over 10 years now, I've only ever owned Puma trainers. No other man, brand of trainer. Um, yeah, but when you buy a pair of Puma trainers, it doesn't say this pair of trainers is going to last forever. It doesn't say that at all. I don't think they build in obsolescence. I think they make a very good product. Uh, particularly Puma makes a very good product, but but they're trainers, you know, and, and eventually the tread's going to go. So, 
you know, even if there was a, a fatal accident involving a pair of trainers that had become uh, a bit past it, then I think that would overwhelmingly be the fault of the owner of the trainers. But what would definitely not be the reason for the accident would be the combination of trainers and jeans. Wearing jeans and trainers at the same time, that wouldn't be a reason for an accident. I mean, you you could get a sort of unhinged fashion designer. You know what I mean? One of those kind of... One of those breathtakingly camp uh, fashion designers who get enraged by people wearing things they don't like. And, you know, I could see one of them snapping and shooting someone for wearing jeans and trainers, but that would be their fault. They would claim they were provoked, but, I mean, even in the sort of... even in the tried by a jury of their peers, of other fashion designers, you might get a split jury, but I, I think a majority of fashion designers, would, and certainly normal people, would say you really shouldn't shoot someone or assault them for, for the clothes, for wearing jeans and trainers together. I mean, a nightclub bouncer, you know, there are there are nightclubs that don't let you come in in trainers, and it might be that they'd let it go if the person was smartly dressed otherwise. But because they were wearing both jeans and trainers, they'd say, no, that's just too casual, and a fight could ensue, um, and the bouncer could maybe batter someone. What would be interesting as a test case would be what would happen if someone wearing jeans and trainers was refused entry to a nightclub and battered the bouncer. So in other words, it was the person wearing jeans and trainers who committed the offence. Would I then be culpable? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Would I then be culpable? I'm thinking probably no, but I might seek some legal advice on that. It's probably worth me hiring a lawyer to spend six or seven hours looking at what would happen in that scenario, just so I'm ready in case it comes along. Because obviously I've now gone on the record explain. I've now gone on the record explaining that I am responsible for the combination of genes and trainers. But if I am going to be, yeah, if I'm going to be in the frame for any, if I'm going to be in the frame for. Um, for, for for lawsuits like that, then I would at least like to get the credit. If I'm going to get the blame, I'd like to get the credit, and I don't want to monetize it. I mean, if anyone listening enjoys wearing jeans and trainers and wants to send me a check, you know, as an as a, as an article of good faith, then then send me a voice message on here, and we'll sort that out. That would be very kind of you. Um, and it would just be a nice gesture, you know. I, I would probably just spend it on a nice meal out, and yes, I'd go to a restaurant where you could wear jeans and trainers. I'd probably go back to McDonald's. Um, now I know not to wear a kilt at McDonald's. I'd probably go back to McDonald's and um, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe what I'd do though is I'd speak in a Scottish accent throughout my time in the rest in McDonald's, just for my own amusement. Because I like doing that, you know. Don't you like doing that? Sometimes you just do something which no one else gets. You just think, oh, that'll be that'll be funny. I'll just. Um, I'll just go and, uh, yeah, I'll just speak in a Scottish accent. and I'll, I'll go by myself, so, so no one will know that I'm not a Scottish. And they won't be laughing. They won't be going, oh, that's a funny Scottish accent, or why are you speaking in a Scottish accent, Tom? They'll be going, oh, here's a Scottish bloke, you know, if it, you know, if, if it even registers. I might, go to a, I might go to a McDonald's in Scotland, and then, in a way, 
by definition, I would be right that it was a Scottish restaurant, because although McDonald's isn't isn't Scottish themed restaurant, a McDonald's in Scotland is a Scottish restaurant, just like an Indian restaurant in Scotland is uh, is a Scottish restaurant, and that's not that's not racist. That's not racist because it, if it's in Scotland, it is Scottish. I mean, that's the opposite of racist. It's saying that an Indian restaurant in Scotland is still authentically Scottish, like a McDonald's in Scotland is is still authentically Scottish, even though. Astonishingly, McDonald's is an American-themed restaurant, not a Scottish-themed restaurant. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, if you want to send me a check to say thank you, well, I'd say check. It might be uh, uh, to be honest, cash would be better. Um, don't feel you have to. There's no obligation. I'm not. It's it's more gesture of goodwill. Just I want people to acknowledge. I want people to acknowledge it because I'm feeling a little bit like like Belgium, really, and that I I've had this enormous influence, but very few people know it. And I don't know, it, it just seems sad in a way, because I haven't got much else going on for me, and, and that is something I did. And um, I would suggest that when I die, I have a, I have a, I have a denim, a denim-look gravestone, and people could come and leave trainers, puma preferably. People could come and leave puma trainers at it from time to time, instead of flowers. But... Um, the problem with that, the two problems with that. Firstly, it would look terrible. And secondly, actually, I, I think I'd like to be cremated. Um, do I want my ashes to be kept in a in a puma shoe? No. No, I don't want that. Well, listen, um, it's been lovely to talk to you, talk with you, talk at you. Talk at you, really, aren't I? Talk at you, really, don't I? I talk at you uh, with this uh, this method, but it's been um, it's been delightful. You, you you've uh, you've listened very patiently, <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, it's it's been fun. It's good to get some of that stuff off my chest. I think um, the problem with smoking cannabis in your sleep is that although you don't get any of the downsides, you don't get that many of the upsides as well. Uh, it doesn't really have that calming effect on me. Um, as I say, it does make my dreams a bit better somehow. Uh, whether that's the the LSD I dream about or the cannabis I dream about, it's very hard to say. Um, I cannot stress enough that I would not recommend mixing those drugs in 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 when you're not asleep and not just dreaming about doing it. But in in my sleep, it seems to this seems to be a cocktail that that works rather well. Um, but uh, but yeah. Um, I wonder what I'll uh, what I'll dream about tonight. Um, maybe I'll try something else. Maybe uh, maybe I'll chop up a few lines of cocaine and snort them with abandon in my dreams tonight. As I say, I don't think don't think that anything illegal that you do in your dreams will uh, will get you in trouble. But of course, you know if they are recorded by the tech giants, as they probably are, then they could just be played back by the tech giants, there'd be no way of telling that actually what had happened had happened in someone's brain in a dream and not happened in real life. Uh, but these are big issues that we're grappling with and there's uh, there's limited time to do so. So, yeah, I just want to say, uh, I just want to say thank you very much and uh, look forward to, uh, look forward to, to uh, talking to you next time. Bye for now. Thank you. You were listening to Eclectic Waffle. Thank you very much indeed.